Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. I am super excited today to have a fellow macro guy on the show, Rao Pal. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great. You're calling in from uh, the Caymans today? Yeah, our office is right near the beach, so it's not the end of the world. Although you're in LA, so you don't have the worst weather either. Not so bad here. You know, we um, so I met Raul at the Cayman Investment Forum. We had some sushi and sake, and uh, the next morning, I uh, I did I did a sit down video for Real Vision, and um, the interview went great. We had a fun time, but it's 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 probably the sweatiest interview I ever did because I, I went running right before the show, and so I'm I'm almost too embarrassed to show it to anyone, but had a lot of fun. So I'm excited to turn the tables on Raul today and, and get to ask him lots of questions. So I just thought you were nervous, Matt. That's why you were sweating. <laughs> I, don't, I, I, I don't really get nervous. And I also don't really run. So uh, it was just a combination <laughs> of just being sweaty. Anyway, so a, a lot of the listeners have heard us mention um, one of your new ventures, Real Vision. But why don't, uh, for, for most of the people that aren't familiar with you, give us a super quick background on how career trajectory that that landed you uh in the caymans today sure um my background was equity derivatives that's where i started my career in london i happened to early in my career get involved with some of the world's largest hedge funds you know at that stage there weren't that many hedge funds but they were massive and really important the tigers soros's tudor steinhardt more capital all of those guys my kind of sales side of the career Finished when I was running equities and equity derivatives at Goldman Sachs, uh, dealing with for, in for hedge funds. So I had the big hedge fund teams, huge team of us, and I was just lucky enough to get to learn the trade from the greatest people in the history of investing. So you know, I've always been a macro junkie, and I, you know, incredibly fortuitous in my career in getting to know the other guys who shared my same macro junkie mentality. The obvious happened is I moved over to the dark side back in 2000 and moved across to a hedge fund which was GLG Partners. Uh, I ran an internal book there to start with and then launched and uh, managed the Global Macro Fund. GLG is probably, well, it was at the time the largest hedge fund group in Europe. They then took over Man Group and they're now absolutely enormous. So I did that for a few years and uh, had the fun of the Global Macro game investing. I've always been investing myself. But back in 2005, I decided to opt out of the rat race and kind of semi-retire at the age of 36 and moved to the sunny Valencian coast of Spain, where scratching my head thinking, well, what am I going to do now? I realized I'd learned so much and my framework within global macro was different to so many people. I tend to approach things in different ways that people might be interested in, in um, reading stuff that I have to write. So I started a uh, research service called the Global Macro Investor, which was a very, it's very high end. It's very institutional. It's aimed at the largest hedge funds in the world. Uh, big family offices, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds. 
but started you know writing for a few people and before you know it it resonated and people loved what I did and I built a business from there just quietly from Spain writing away and uh, traveling around the world meeting these incredible investors advising them on their portfolios and the best trade ideas in the world and then 2008 came along and I got increasingly awkward with the dichotomy that people like myself knew exactly what was going on and had been predicting that this was going to happen but the ordinary guy had been let down both by financial media and by the banks nobody wanted to acknowledge the risks that, that, that were there and people were getting destroyed whether it was in the housing market whether it was their savings um, or in Spain when the banks started shutting down um, and I thought you know that it's really not right that the media has let people down so I had this idea that I had a duty to do something about it. I've had a great career in finance, and I think that finance is not an, should not be an elitist industry. It's basically everybody's savings and what to do with it. And you can't treat it as entertainment, as many of the media networks had. You have to take it seriously. So anyway, I parked that for a while and carried on writing, doing my thing. And then I ended up having a dinner in Spain one day with a guy called Grant Williams, who writes a newsletter called Things That Make You Go Home. And Grant, I'd never met Grant before, but he'd been a big fan of my work and happened to be in Spain. So we, got, we had a few glasses of Rioja over dinner, as you do. Before you know it, he was talking about some of the videos he'd made. And I'd seen some and was very impressed. And then the light bulb moment came was the fact that we were probably stupid enough to go and take on the entire financial television industry and start a whole new media business. So that's what we decided to do. And Real Vision was born a few years later, four of us in a small office in the Cayman Islands. We're now 50 people. We've got customers in over 100 countries worldwide. Some of the world's greatest investors on a weekly basis appearing on the platform, telling us their best trade ideas, what they do, how they invest. Some of the world's best analysts, strategists. We've broken some of the world's biggest investment stories. It's an incredible journey. And it's good. It's interesting. We'll come back to the the some ideas on the on the business side a little later in the podcast. And because you and I see the world pretty similar, there we used to write a handful of articles about some of the needs there on the on the content side and the frustrations, of course, with going on CNBC for fifteen seconds in the in the octagon. But but let's talk about investment ideas first because. Um, you know, you are a little bit different in in saying macro is kind of like you know saying dog, right? A, a Great Dane is is different than a poodle, is different than a beagle, and so you have the Rintex of the world that are systematic macro, and then you have other guys that are discretionary. Maybe talk a little bit about your framework for how you view the world, and I know you talk a lot about the business cycle as well, and then and then we'll touch on a few specific kind of ideas and in, in the way the world looks to you. So maybe let's start with uh, your general investing framework? I saw the opportunity when I was running a macro fund and having monthly P&L reporting. So even though you you have a time horizon of your idea, let's say your idea is what's happening to the US economy over the next year, you can't trade that in a month-by-month view because the data only comes out month-by-month. And meanwhile, for reporting purposes and risk management purposes, you have to look at this on a monthly basis. It kind of was ludicrous. And I realized the great investment arbitrage, the biggest source of alpha of all, was time horizon. The longer term time horizon you have, the more probability you will have of success if you have a framework that is true and robust and realistic. Those two things married together just shift the balance of probabilities in your favor. And this whole game is about probabilities. None of us are right all the time. 
all we try and do is look for the time when probability is on our side and the risk reward is in our favor. So what I did is I developed when I was at Goldman and then through to GLG particularly, I started developing a framework based on the business cycle. What that means is I looked at the ISM survey and the ISM survey is what I use as the basis for the business cycle. And the ISM is the Institute of Supply Managers Survey where they survey a load of um, purchasing managers and ask them about their intentions and what's happening to prices and various bits and pieces. But regardless of that, it's an index, it goes up and down. But it happens to go up and down perfectly with GDP. So it's a monthly index that basically forecasts or tracks GDP. Okay, so that's pretty useful. But why is it useful is because asset prices are moved by economic growth. Now, this is where people get lost. People think, well, if the economy is growing at a certain pace, then asset prices should be fine. It doesn't work as simplistically as that. It's the, it's the rate of change that counts. So when the ISM is at 50, which is considered neutral, i.e. the economy is not expanding or contracting, then the return versus part the last year in the S&P should be about zero. If the ISM goes high, as it is now, then the return over the previous year should be higher, 10%, 15%, whatever the number is. And if the ISM signals a recession, which is roughly 46 or lower, then we'll see the year-on-year -year rate of change of the S&P contracting. But it's not only the S&P, but it allows us to forecast the S&P, but it's not just the S&P, because the year-on-year -year change in bond yields is driven by the ISM. The year-on-year -year change in inflation is driven by that. The year-on-year -year change in world trade is driven by that. The year-on-year -year change in the Kospi index in Korea is driven by the same thing. In fact, almost all asset classes, copper, oil, everything, are driven by the US business cycle, which is the main driver of the global business cycle. So basically, understand one thing, and you can pretty much understand the relative pricing of all assets. And it also allows you to forecast. The forecastability of the business cycle is based on a simple thing. Even a child can understand this, but for some reason economists can't is economies go up and down. They're cyclical. It's just a fact. Look at any chart of GDP over the last 200 years, it goes up and down. So what we know from that is we can get probabilities out of that. So we know, for example, that every economic expansion lasts, on balance, seven to nine years. So currently we're in year eight. So we've got to expect a recession this year, next year, or if we're at the wild extremes, the year after that. So we know the probabilities of a recession coming are rising. If it was year three, the probability of a recession is extremely low. So that kind of thing makes you understand, therefore, that we should be cautious in stock markets and more positive in bond markets. Um, and so all of the things flow out. It also means we'd be less optimistic in the oil markets and the commodity markets. And so that's how I look at the world. It's a simple framework, but it's worked over time. The ISM survey goes back to 1948, and it's worked ever since. And there's the Treasury survey that preceded it that went back to 1890, uh, 1870, and that worked too. So we've got a huge set of data that's forecastable, understandable. Nothing gives you a 100% chance and nothing ever will. But what it gives you is a very easy way to understand the world. So that's, that, that's how I do it.
you don't have to just uh, believe Rao straight off, but uh, we, we pulled off a chart off Ned Davis and they do a lot of quantification and there's some pretty good stats on showing that, you know, when, when ISM is above 50, you know, in future stock market returns are, are fairly strongly positive and vice versa below 50. So what you're, what you're saying has merit. And by the way, there's a great video uh, we'll link to in the show notes of, of Rao talking about the business cycle at realvision.com forward slash business cycle. So, okay. So the, the ISM kind of ripped back up after the depths of the crisis and was strong for a few years, kind of bounced along a few times, maybe touching 50. And then last year, I believe in uh, 2016, there was a couple of times when it looked like it might roll over and then really kind of rip back up. So what does that kind of mean right now? It's at a fairly high number now. And then what, is, what does that kind of say about markets to you as far as uh, your, your takeaways in the, in the main uh, markets as a starting point? Yeah, so just going back a little bit historically, as you said, the business cycle started weakening badly in 2015 and early 2016, the ISM was below 50 and GDP was below zero. So I had been forecasting a recession looking for that. Now it didn't stick around. And the reason it didn't really stick around is a number of elements, but one of the key elements was that the rate of change, the fall in commodity prices and various other things have been so extreme that the the rebound meant that the economic data started coming out much more positive. It's the year-on-year comparison of economic data that makes a big difference. And the ISM has rebounded strongly, as had the year-on-year change in oil and all sorts of other indices and commodities. To explain is everything looks stronger than it is. And that's because of this translation effect to January, February last year when everything was puking. So it now looks very strong. The reality is, is that translation effect comes off all of this data from next month onwards. So the data should weaken significantly and we'll see yet again the true trend rate of growth of the US. And I think GDP will come back down to kind of one and a half percent, one percent, that kind of level where trend rate of growth appears to be now. So that sets me up. So again, if we know that the asset prices have followed the business cycle, we have a vague prediction here of the business cycle should weaken because of one of the reasons why it was so why it's so strong now. We understand why it could weaken, and therefore that should tell us that some of these asset prices are pricing in the wrong thing. It means that equities are likely to struggle a bit. I don't think there's anything major to worry about. Bond prices, however, bond yields should significantly fall because bond yields are basically just GDP plus inflation. So if GDP is lower and inflation is going to be lower all by this dollar translation effect, then bonds should be a home run trade. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. Oil is the other one that's involved in this whole in this whole mix. And I think oil is also likely to become weaker due to the business cycle and a whole number of other things that I think we'll probably talk about later. And oil, you know, is interesting. I mean, you kind of went out on a limb on the oil side where you say potentially at some point, and you don't have a position yet to my knowledge, but you said potentially could set up as a home run short trade. And part of the thesis, I believe, was has to do something with speculative positioning. Maybe you talk a little bit what you mean by that. Oil is also very cyclical. Um, what has happened recently is that the oil price kind of rebounded after the big sell-off down to 30 bucks in, in Jan Feb last year. That brought some speculative positioning into it, but not only some speculative positioning, it's the largest ever speculative positioning in the history of oil. In fact, if I look over the 30-year history of oil, 
it was a seven standard deviation or eight standard deviation event. Basically, too many people got involved on the long side in oil. So that is the kind of thing, that's a brilliant example of where I will suddenly start to look at something and say, okay, oil is following the business cycle, it's kind of doing what it's supposed to be doing, but suddenly speculative positioning is way ahead of where the business cycle should be going. We then look at the US dollar, the US dollar has been strengthening, it has an inverse relationship with um, oil and there's kind of alligator jaws of of where the two charts have separated, suggesting that oil is probably 10 or 15 bucks too high here at around 50. So all of these things start to get me interested in what's going on. So then that's when I start digging into the story and I started talking to people about what's really going on in oil. And it seems that Saudi Arabia is behind this because of the Aramco deal. Aramco, if you remember, is the uh, Saudi Arabian state oil company that is purported to be the largest company in the world and has a market potential market cap of a trillion or two trillion dollars. Nobody's really sure. They were talking about IPOing Aramco. Now, there's a whole number of reasons I don't think that will ever happen, but there's also a bond coming because Saudi Arabia is desperate for cash. And I have a feeling that they are in cahoots with some of the larger hedge funds to try and support the price of oil at a high level before this bond comes out. So we've got a whole series of things that make it very interesting to me. A number of reasons why the market has done sustainable. I then spoke to the oil producing guys, you know, a whole load of oil traders that I know, and they're like, we're selling as much oil as we possibly can. We see how much is in our ships, how much is in the tankers, how much is in the ground, how much is in storage. We know how much is being used and nothing adds up. So that it's coming close to being a perfect trade. So the last part of what I do is I use technical analysis for timing. Um, so I'm now waiting for a technical setup. Um, I've got the first part of the move. I'm now really waiting potentially for a bit of a bounce around, a bit of a digestion of that move from the recent high. And then if oil breaks kind of the 45 to 43 level, then the trade is on and oil could hit as low as 30. That's interesting. You know, one of the parts that I, I do enjoy about reading through your pieces is is a lot of the use of the, the charting is packed in many, many charts on um, involving some technical analysis, which uh, you've been using for years. So there's another quote that I saw, you know, in the piece, and this is an area that we certainly overlap on. I remember when uh, when we sat down for our chat, and you said, "Meb, what's your what's your best idea right now?" If I had to ask, and I think my response at the time was was emerging markets. But one of the comments you have in the paper says, "I continue to believe that the source source of biggest returns over the long term are not developed markets, but markets that were smashed over the financial crisis and are beginning to recover." Um, and you give some examples in uh, in the piece, but maybe you want to talk about a few uh, what you meant there and a, and a few possible ideas on on where you think. There's some opportunity. Yeah, I mean, if you understand what an index is, it's very different to a stock, and not, not a lot of people understand the subtle difference is the fact that an index, unless they close down the stock market, will never go to zero. Um, and what you've got is some extraordinary things that I have never seen in my entire lifetime, in my entire study of financial markets, and I, I'm a big economic and financial market historian, are markets that are down 95% and have never recovered. So what you get is basically a self-funding option. So whether the market is Greece or Cyprus, Cyprus is down more than any market I've ever witnessed in history, which is 99.5%. So it's basically worthless. 
Now, you could buy Cypriot stocks. Now, they're not, they're, you know, they're, they're, it's an EU country, so you can buy them through a brokerage. That's not the easiest thing to do, but no good trades are easy to do. If not, everybody would be rich. Um, and so Cypriot stocks, Greek stocks, these things act like an option, but they're self-funding because they pay dividends. So you can get paid dividends to sit on something that, that is an option. So you trade a small size, but the upside is tenfold. So yes, you can lose you know another fifty percent from here, as the classic you know quote goes. But the point is, the upside is ten times your money. So risk reward bets over an extended period of time are great. And unlike an option trade where you lose money over time because of the time decay, you actually gain money over time because of dividends. And the nice part about a lot of these bombed out markets is, you know, we talk a lot about on the podcast of my favorite intersection, which is, you know, something that's really cheap or, or value or in many cases, something that's just simply bombed out, but is starting to, to enter an uptrend. And you're really starting to see for the first time over the past nine months or so, a lot of these countries that are really, really cheap. Uh, start to outperform and really see some moves. But going back to your comment, you know, we did a study that has been pretty popular where we took the French Fama database back to the 1920s on sectors and industries and just a really fun one where we said, you know, number of down years in a row. And, and it's very similar to another study we did with looking at the same thing, sectors and industries once they were down 60, 70, 80, 90 percent and found exactly what you're talking about, which was you have to have a long time horizon. So meaning in terms of years rather than months or quarters, but basically the more something has gone down, the more down years in a row, uh, the fewer future the expected returns are. We'll put a link in the show notes, but certainly spits out a lot of names. Like you even mentioned uranium stocks in one of your pieces. And we've talked a little bit about that as well. And I was also interesting to see, uh, you mentioned a couple of names in the piece where you said uh, you may be more bullish on Morocco is one of your favorite countries. And I was laughing because we did a, uh, a survey being an ETF issuer and said, I'm curious what the largest GDP countries are that don't have ETFs. And I think Morocco is in the top three. Um, and then, of course, you also said Iran. So ETF, listen, uh, ETF issuers listening to my podcast, feel free to steal my ideas and, and launch a Moroccan ETF. By the way, you can buy every single company in Greece the entire lot, the entire stock market, for less than the price of Bed Bath & Beyond in the US. Just so you know how cheap it is. <laughs> well, we have a fund that owns a bunch of Greek stocks and, and have for the past few years. So I, I can uh, I can sympathize and, and I understand. And Greece is one that's interesting. You've seen a lot of big moves out of countries, whether it's Brazil or Russia, a lot of these super cheap valuation countries, and even a lot of Europe and Eastern Europe start to um, really recover stock markets over the past few months. And, and Greece is one that's been kind of quiet. Maybe everyone's forgot about it. So, uh, you know, hopefully... Hopefully, we might see some big returns there. I think we will. I want to save some time for a really, really interesting article in, in this month's um, GMI that you wrote. And it was followed up by, I think you had tweeted about it and basically asked your audience, you know, does has anyone ever heard of this or this what, this topic where we're going to talk about? And basically, everyone said no. And the lead in from, from your piece, you said, I think this is the biggest emerging market macro story in the world. And you're talking about India. So do you, you want to talk a little bit about what, what you found in, uh, in your study? Yeah. I mean, I had it, this. I only just came to this recently. I'm half Indian. I don't know anything about this. But when, when I discovered 
after writing a small GMI article, I then discovered the whole story. I was I was shocked. You know, it's an extraordinary thing. So what happened was India banned cash. We all saw that. You know, everybody was like, you know, this the government stealing your money. Isn't this terrible? Because everyone looks through Western eyes. You know, if that happened in the West, it's a much more potentially concerning thing, not necessarily concerning. But anyway, so everybody's screaming and shouting, what a terrible thing. And I, I thought about it, and I listened to what they were actually saying, and I realized that what they wanted to do was basically stop the petty corruption within India. Okay, that's a good thing. Would it stop all the corruption? No. But it's a good thing, it's a good idea. It also would recapitalize the banks, because everyone would have to take their money from their mattresses, put it into the banking system. So I kind of stopped at that and thought, oh, that's interesting. And then I started doing a little more reading, and I realized something had happened in India that had never happened anywhere else in the world, is they have, in the background, without kind of letting anybody know, 1.1 billion people have gone onto a database called Aadhaar. Aadhaar allows, is a retina scan or a fingerprint system that, that essentially carries all of your information. So as opposed to having a ID card, you have a retina scan or a fingerprint. Okay, that's, that's pretty straightforward. However, India cleverly, once they got 1.1 billion people onto the system, because people in India, many people didn't have birth certificates, were unbanked, they couldn't get into the system because they couldn't prove who they were or what they were. This was a way of, of doing a number of things. It brings people in the system because everybody had to get registered. Once they got registered, it means that they could use their fingerprint or their retina scan for transfer of payments. So they created an application uh, called UPI that allows instant transfer without a bank in the middle between one party and the other over a mobile phone. Using your, the confirmation process is your retina scan, which they've got a camera on your phone or just a fingerprint. Okay, that's pretty revolutionary. It's a bit like where people were expecting Bitcoin to go on a different level as a payment system. And it's processing, processing ability is enormous and it works over a 2G phone network. So you basically need no technology to do it. Okay, that's a revolution to start with. But the revolution went beyond that because the Indians then decided, well, what we should do is use this verification system, this digital ver verification system or biometric system to secure everybody's documents. So your birth certificate, your utility bills, your bank statements, your medical records, anything goes into something called India Stack. India Stack is a secure Dropbox or lockbox digital that you only access with your retina or fingerprint, so it's difficult to hack. Now, the point being is, again, India went one stage further and did some incredible things. You are now able to go into a medical clinic anywhere in India with just your fingerprint. Let's say you've been run over and you've got amnesia. They can put your fingerprint down and they will know your full medical record. So you don't need to transfer medical files around. Now, that system is being developed, it, it, it's, it, it's developed, but the, getting all of the doctors and everybody on it is, is in process of being developed. Not only that, but a farmer in the middle of nowhere can now easily open a bank account, which couldn't before, because farmers are poor and farmers weren't often in the financial system. They can now do that, they can get loans. It's a digital know your client. So you use your fingerprint, it'll give all the data in your India stack to the bank and they can re renew, uh, review it instantaneously and give you a loan there and then. It also shows the records of all the other loans and everything else in the financial system so that you can judge the leverage levels. 
So that's another whole thing. So you're bringing everybody into the system that couldn't ever get into the system. They can get insurance. They can get banking. They can get. They can open a mobile phone account with a fingerprint. And to top it all off, they've gone one stage further. You can now go to a local store and buy a carton of milk by just using your fingerprint. No wallet, no telephone, no nothing. So basically, they've just revolutionized the entire financial infrastructure of one of the largest countries on earth. And it is a massive change. And what's, what's sort of investment implications? Is it, is it such that you know, this is kind of releasing the animal spirits of capitalism by allowing a lot of people that weren't in the system to now participate? Or, and what's the, what's the thesis? Is there any sort of actionable thoughts there? Right. So there's three, there's three levels of the thesis. At the very top down, it's somebody who's taken the foot off the brake. If you imagine the friction caused by a 90% cash system where people are disparate, they couldn't communicate easily, You've then thrown in this incredible mobile phone network that's building, and I'll come on to in a sec, and allowed them to exchange money and everything else without middlemen taking a share. So you're basically lowering your personal tax rate. Not only that, for the average guy, it makes it easier to do business. The farmer can hedge himself. He can buy insurance. He can get banking. He can get a loan. He can do all of the things that wasn't available. So somebody's taken a foot off the brake of India. Then the mobile phone industry, that is going to explode because all of this is based on mobile phones. So there's only 28% smartphone penetration in India. That's going to explode. So the data usage within India is going to dwarf that of any other country in the world just by what they've done. So it's going to become the the mobile phone data center of the world. That means it will attract capital, people, and technologies. All of this India stack is open APIs. It means anybody can build products around it to interact with it, which is going to bring a whole load of fintech revolutionary stuff to India, potentially to get exported to the world. Additionally, the banking system that was starved of capital from a load of bad loans in the past and hindered by corruption, that all gets cleaned up in one go because everyone's had to put their money back in the banking system. And it's a banking system that functions purely and simply and easily. So on a number of levels, you've just massively stimulated an economy. If the government can obviously raise more taxes because most people didn't pay tax in India. In fact, the tax uptake in India was like 10%. It's ridiculously low. Nobody paid tax. Now people pay tax. Okay, so what that means is that the government can finally spend money on infrastructure because India's got terrible, terrible infrastructure. So the government can stimulate that too. So you've got a multi-stage approach, all of which are positive for the Indian economy. Uh, It will play out over years, but it's one of the biggest opportunities with a country with a demographics, you know, the average person is aged about 30 years old. You've got this enormous demographic wave of people looking for opportunity and who have spending power. So I, I can't think of a better story. I like it, Jeff. I think that means we need to start thinking about some some Indian fintech ETFs. What do you think? <laughs> um, Raul, you mentioned a, uh, a, a brief uh, reference to Bitcoin. And so, by the way, I, there's, a, there's a website you can go and sort people's tweets by most popular favorited retweets. And I think about well, one one of your most popular was a, a quote you made earlier, which was "longer time horizon is the greatest edge in investing." But I think three or four of the other most popular had to do with Bitcoin. And you've been talking about Bitcoin a long time. You've been—I know you recommended it 
in 2013. I know you even wrote an article that talked about the possibility that Bitcoin could, could eventually reach a million. Our, our listeners, we don't spend a lot of time talking about Bitcoin on, on this podcast. Maybe give us just sort of kind of your quick thoughts on Bitcoin as either an investment or as uh, kind of how you, how you view it and what you learned about it in the last few years. Yeah, I mean, if you asked me this question six months ago, I've had a different answer. Um, so it's not that clear. So people new to Bitcoin, it's a cryptocurrency. So it's a currency based on a mathematical formula that only issues up to 21 million of these Bitcoins. It's basically computing power because you need an enormous amount of computing power to, to, to solve the mathematical uh, equation to to earn a coin for doing it. It's basically you getting paid to lend out your, your computing power to the network. What it does is it essentially, it's called the blockchain, it's the infrastructure behind Bitcoin, which basically is a three-party or multi-party ledger system, meaning that as opposed to having a buy and a sell being put down in a ledger, you have a buy, sell and a validation by somebody else, which sounds simplistic, but it actually is revolutionary. It's revolutionary because it gives proof. It gives, you know, as opposed to one person's word against another, it's a much stronger system of proof. So it creates a whole number of things. And, and as the technologies develop, people realize you can attach contracts to it. So your proof of purchase with your house or, or whatever it may be, derivative contracts, anything can go onto the blockchain. So it becomes incredibly powerful. And basically, Bitcoin is a share of that blockchain. Now, Bitcoin is also a number of things to a number of people. Many people think it's a currency, others think of it as a commodity, and others think of it as a share of the blockchain. So it's like being getting a share in the internet. It's you know, the blockchain potentially is the financial internet. So that's the great story about it. The bad story is it's volatile. I still think it probably goes a lot higher because its uses are very high. But many, many people bought into it thinking it was a currency and it was you couldn't touch it like governments can touch other fiat currencies because of this formula. However, in recent weeks, it's become apparently clear that there is a group of Bitcoin developers who want to try and move towards changing the formula for Bitcoin to allow it to transact more, to, to conduct more transactions in each block. Um, basically make it faster. Now, that's an innocuous thing. Of course, it's a good thing for blockchain and, and you know, if they decide to have one version versus another or both of them running against each other, who cares? But what I do care about, it means it can't be a currency because what you've done is just proven that it's not sacrosanct. So it's changed the format of what it is. So I think it's going to get a bit more volatile for a while. Um, but what I do know is some of the world's smartest minds are, are working on blockchain technology right now to create payment systems, to create storage systems, and to create a whole number of things that we have no understanding what can come out of it. It's basically like bit, bit, having the internet back in kind of 1996. You had no idea what was going to come from it. So I think it's the same thing. I think the India story also added a bit of confusion because suddenly India developed a payment system that was faster, as effective, on lower technology than Bitcoin. So okay, it's not a cryptocurrency, it's still to do with the Indian rupee, but as a payment system, it's bloody good. So that kind of says that maybe Bitcoin is not going to be the world's most efficient payment system. But what it's going to be, I don't know. But as a tri-party ledger, that's the backbone of the world's financial system, I think it's certain to happen. So I think there's some downside and there's some volatility and there's some unknowns that come out of Bitcoin. But over time, if you want to own a share of that financial system, 
then you have to own Bitcoin. You know, it's funny. I, I, I've been kind of a pleasant uh, spectator on Bitcoin. We even set up on the idea farm that people could pay in Bitcoins. And so far, no one, no one took me up on it. And I was sad because I, I wanted to own some without actually having to buy any. And so th- there's a lot of other cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, etc. Is that sort of like Betamax versus VHS? Do you even spend any time looking at some of these other uh, cryptocurrencies as well? Yes. I mean, I don't look at most of them, you know, because it's, you know, as a macro guy, I'm a, a master of a lot of, uh, you know, I look at a lot of things, I'm a master of none of them almost. But, you know, with the cryptocurrency world, yes, there are several cryptocurrencies. You can have different blockchains. Many of them are positioning themselves for different uses. So Ethereum may have a different use than Ripple may have a different use to Bitcoin. I think in the end, the space is large enough for them all to be valuable which ones are the right ones. So it's not like VHS and Betamax. It's a, it's a multi-system. It's more like Windows versus other operating systems is how I'd look at it. So the, inter- the internet still exists, i.e. blockchain technology, and there'll be different ways of accessing it. We could talk about investments for an hour, and we'll probably just have to have you back on again. But I want to touch on two more investing questions and then pivot to talk a little bit about um, some content and media ideas. First, you know, you talk a lot about um, your audience is obviously very institutional. You know, a lot of our listeners are RIAs or brokers or individuals as well, as opposed to, you know, large pension fund CIOs. So given that, um, would your kind of market commentary, things we've talked about so far today, investment recs, would it change significantly or, or the opportunities similar, just slightly different in implementation due to scale, et cetera? For, in which area? Sorry. Oh, well, just, just like, so like everything we've talked about today on investment ideas and approach is, is that something that you think that a lot of the, it's, it's targeted towards CIOs and big institutions, but you know, is this equally applicable to, to the smaller investor, et cetera? More so, more so I think, Meb. And the reason being is I think small investors suffer from lack of, lack of framework because they don't get the tools that the bigger guys get. And to get the right framework where you're not just punting, and you really understand what drives the global economy and what drives asset prices, I think it's really important. So even if you're just an investor who buys and sells S&P 500 ETFs, to understand what the business cycle does, if you were to just to sell out your exposure and go flat every time the ISM crossed 47, you get whipsawed a couple of times. But over the last 30 years, and you've rebought it when it crossed 50 on the upside, you have a fantastic return. So just simple things, taking from other people's frameworks is important. So, you know, yes, we might be getting quite complex in, you know, areas that people can't buy. People can buy India. There's an ETF. It's not the most liquid, but it's doable. You know, the S&P 500, as I said, you know, it probably is fine for the time being, but it's not going to go up a great deal unless the ISM continues to go higher. Oil, that's a tradable thing. Oil stocks are tradable. Maybe people don't like to short them, but many people are overweight them. So I think that's interesting. But if you want to break it down to a single company level, you know, there are interesting things even within the US. Because I wrote a long article, for example, about Google. Google is the company that everybody believes to be something amazing. Um, you know, it's this great technology giant and they're so, they're so clever and so smart. Google is basically actually a media company. And media companies pay, trade on a much smaller valuation than Google does. Google just happens to own 70% of the entire, between Google and Facebook, 70% of the entire digital media space. So, you know, perceptions like that give you an edge because you understand that they should not be trading like a technology stock, so they're relatively expensive. However, 
there are technology companies that people don't believe are technology companies that are ridiculously cheap. IBM. IBM is an amazing example of a company that nobody seems to understand anymore because everyone just thinks it's, it's the boring stock of your dad. But really, they are, IBM Watson is one of the biggest revolutions to be brought to the general public in terms of artificial intelligence. They're also trying to launch quantum computing power for the general public. So IBM are doing some incredible stuff, trades off a P of 12. It's ludicrous. So, you know, there are opportunities just for the average guy. Some of them are business cycle frameworks, others are macro themes, the rise of artificial intelligence and how to play that theme. You know, everybody likes to play the theme, meaning we're all going to be out of jobs. Yeah, well, you can be out of a job and rich if you buy the right companies that produce artificial intelligence. The, the, your Google, Facebook sort of a long piece um, will, will have to be a topic for another podcast. But I th- found it, one, highly interesting and two, had, had very similar experiences. So we'll have to talk about, talk about that next time you're in L.A. So well, let's pivot a little bit because I, there's a lot of interesting going on uh, at your shop. And you had a great quote. I can't remember where I found this. Um, but it says basically, the highest return on capital right now is not necessarily necessarily in investing, it's building a business. You can make 20% a year owning a coffee shop, but you can't make 20% easily. You'd have to beat all the best hedge fund and the managers in the world in the stock market. Start businesses and that will make you money. And so maybe talk a little bit about that and then kind of the origins of what you've done uh, with Real Vision, because uh, I think a lot of people in our audience in particular are interested because we talk a lot about uh, financial media education as well as curation of ideas and, and the challenges of really finding the signal and the noise out of out of so much as what's what's out there so why don't you tell us a little bit about the the origins in there and what what y'all got going on yeah i mean look i think of everything as a macro opportunity i mean macro is in my blood so what is the best asset allocation of my time my time is the only thing that i've got that i can't get more of So I need to optimize my time versus anything else that I own or could own in the future. So the maximum use of my time is how much money can I spend in the time that I've gotten allotted and what's the best use of using my time to get that, i.e. your quality, that that backs that into quality of life. It's not always necessarily time, uh, money, it's, it's the other things you do with your time. So that's how I look at things in a framework. And so for me, you can sweat it out in financial markets And right now, even the world's greatest hedge funds barely make 10%. Okay, so if the smartest people in the world have been doing this for 30 or 40 years, can barely make 10%, the very best in the world are kind of averaging at 17. But right now, so few people want to start a business. It's one of the lowest levels of new business startups in history still, even with the startup revolution going on. You've got very little competition for a lot of things. And the technological changes in the world have, have made building businesses much cheaper. So let's go to Real Vision. So what was the real macro opportunity in Real Vision? Forget the micro of, of, um, of how we could better serve the public with better information. But what's the, what was the macro decision behind it? It was simple. A friend of mine ran one of the largest independent television companies in the UK. Him and I were having dinner and he's like, I don't know what the hell to do about this because the internet has now allowed people to stream video and our business is dead. And I don't know how to charge because I'm being, I have to pay a hundred million pounds a year for a broadcasting license in the UK. And I was thinking about that. I'm thinking, this is such an arbitrage. They're stuck in a business model they can't get out of. They have to pay a hundred million pounds a year 
from the broadcasting license, they've got this incredible cost of infrastructure, you know, camera shoots and studios and people and blah, blah, blah. And I can do it on a handheld camera, digital HD camera and compete and, and publish on the internet. That was the macro opportunity. So I realized there was a need, which was the market need. The market was desperate for higher quality, better information where people don't treat people's finances as entertainment, but take it seriously. Serious financial discussion is a serious matter, but I want to make it engaging too. So people actually want to watch this stuff and want to get involved and understand better how the world works. So I could do that and I could, I could disrupt an incumbent, be it CNBC or Bloomberg Television, who are providing the old school method of doing things at the old school costs. The opportunity is enormous. So that's basically why I started a startup. And so those who aren't familiar listening, Real Vision is a it's a online video platform where Raul and the team will will talk chat with various money managers. We mentioned we did one, but like John Burbank, we've had Mark Yusko on the podcast, a lot of these guys. And it's the best part about it is it's long form. And so, you know, CNBC and Bloomberg, we have a TV at the office. We don't it comes on only during uh, NCA tournament and, and other sporting events, really, because we because it's it's of absolutely no value. And I I have lots of friends that are journalists at CNBC, and I love them to death. But the the short fifteen minute or fifteen seconds, excuse me, video clips, it's it's of no use to your general process, and really all it does is cause people to stress out, etc. And so, um, Raul kind of came to this uh, uh, realization as well. And so we used to talk about. I said, man, I would love to see someone do this Charlie Rose style. What what used to be the old school listeners um, of the podcast um, would recognize Louis Rukeyser, you know, Wall Street Week, these long form conversations of, of some of the brightest minds in the world. So I love it. It's a great it's a great concept. So you, you then went a step further. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, the publication side, which launched, I think, uh, within the last year. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a few fun bits if people want to know startup life. I mean, we've failed many, 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 many times. We blew up our first million dollars. Uh, in having to write off the entire first platform that we did. You know, so we've made lots of failures, lots of mistakes, and worked lots and lots of hours. But we're starting to really get things right. I mean, we've got subscribers in over 100 countries now, and people are absolutely fanatical about what we do, which is you know, an extraordinary thing. I've been in finance for 27 years now, and nobody's ever thanked me until I started Real Vision, and people thank me all the time. So I'm doing something right. But yes, we're launching. Uh, our vision is not just for television. Uh, we're launching a number of products. Um, the first one that launched was Real Vision Publications, where we get a selection of the world's best newsletter writers. Uh, we've got 30 of these incredible newsletter writers. Put them on one platform, show examples of their research, and you'll never get that breadth of quality research. This has never been accessible to the average guy. And again, it's like $300 a year. It's nothing for the kind of information you get. Again, our idea is disrupt the level of quality first design beautiful product, but the quality of information, the average man, the average investor does not deserve average information. It deserves something good. So we did that. Um, we've launched a podcast, which is called Adventures in Finance, which is a fabulous journey through the world of finance. Uh, we've launched that. And then we've got probably another five or six launches of products and whole new business areas coming out this year, all equally disruptive and uh, very new to the space. Well, exciting to look forward to those. You know, I mean, I think it's 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 a part of a bigger transition from 
you know, so many of the old school media properties and don't even get me started on these, the seeking alpha, uh, seeking alphas of the world that have, it's something like 10,000 contributors. And, and we did an article a couple years ago where many, many years we pulled all of our content from all the aggregators in like 08. And we did an article because I said that this is the value of content essentially seeking alphas received for free. And I forget what it was. It was like 50 or 100 million or something. And the beauty of the Internet and, the, and the where we are now is that the people that are creating the content, it doesn't matter if you're talking about microbreweries in Portland or we mentioned on the podcast another day, uh, this podcast where it was an author. And this is the lore podcast where this author uh, had been doing a ton of research for science fiction books. And he said, well, I did all this research. It's interesting historical. I have nothing to really do with it. Um, and then he tossed it uh, into the dustbin on his Apple laptop. He said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with a friend. And then share it with his friend. He's like, hey, you should just turn this into a podcast. And now that podcast gets 5 million downloads a month. And in addition, he's got a new Amazon show that uh, is based on his, his research. And, of course, he, got, he was able to quit his job and focus on writing. So the cool part is that there's all these amazing business ideas can come up in this very niche um, sort of world. So the, the owners and creators of the content um, now have the ability to have a platform. And the one more comment I wanted to make. And it's interesting that you're doing it across multiple channels is that, you know, Jeff and I get emails all the time from listeners and, and in feedback at the mebfavorshow.com. And, and it's funny because people say, Meb, look, you know, I would never read a single one of your books or white papers, but I listen to the podcast every day. And so you, you, you hit different types of people to consume it in different ways. So I, I think it'll be fun for you guys to see on the podcast. You're just getting started the, the different responses from different people, but really looking forward to see the, uh, the new launches. Um, all right. So we're getting close to an hour. Uh, so I don't want to keep you too long. I know it's probably a, a beautiful day out in the Caymans and, and Jeff's itching because Carolina, uh, who y'all playing today? Carolina is, is on it. Butler. You guys should cruise on that. All right. Carolina Butler's comes on in a couple hours. So, Raul, I'm going to ask you a couple more questions and we'll let you go. First, and this is a question we ask everyone, and this is going to be particularly interesting for you because you have a long and varied career. Most memorable trade uh, that you've ever uh, been a part of. And this is good or bad. Memorable where (laughs) you made money or lost money. It doesn't matter. But the one that the first one you think of that come to mind. I think I learnt back in 2001 how incredible it is to trade fixed income, which most people in, in, in America, people are not really good fixed income investors. In Europe, people trade a lot more fixed income. And as the economy started slowing down in 2000, the risk-adjusted return of owning Eurodollar futures, which are the interest rate futures, not the currency futures, was so staggering and it was such a beautiful trade that you could buy and hold that it, it, it made our entire hedge fund basically from one trade. Um, it was an extraordinary period because interest rates got absolutely slashed and you just had to ride that tide. So that was the most exciting trade I've ever been involved in myself. Um, I'll give you a screw up and I'll give you uh, somebody else's most exciting trade. I was really lucky in the Asian crisis to be involved with everything that was going on when I was still at Goldman on behalf of some of the big hedge funds. Seeing how people like Stan Druckenmiller put trades together was astonishing to me. I mean, these guys are legends for a reason, and it's not because necessarily they're the world's best market timers. It's their trade construction. It's so superior that it just blew my mind. Seeing 
trade the intricacies of the South African Rand devaluation back in 1998 was astonishing. Um, so I was very lucky to be part of that. And, and, and what part of it, let's just real quick, but what part of it stood out to you? Was it in the, you know, spending months on a thesis and preparing for the trade? Was it how they position size and manage their, their money management when it, when it came on and, and double down when they were winning? What, what, what was the main kind of takeaway? Is that it's a little bit technical, but I'll, I'll talk you through the trade because it was astonishing. I still think it's the best trade I've ever seen in my life. So I got the phone call from the head of trading, which was sell South Africa. I'm like, what kind of order is that? He said, I don't care. Pick any stock, sell it. I'm like, wow. Okay, so we start offloading South African shares. Not that liquid. And it's the Asian crisis, so everything's all over the place. And the guy calls back again and said, whatever you do, don't sell futures. I said, but they're far the most liquid thing. He goes, I don't want futures. Keep selling as many stocks as you can. I said, does it even need to look like the index? Because I just don't care. Sell them. I'm like, okay. So this went on for five whole days. <laughs> we kind of really, I mean, I can't remember what the position size was. It was like a billion dollars. It was ludicrous. Then nothing happened. The Asian the stock market fell in South Africa and everything was quiet. And they came back and covered their position into a rallying market. And again, it was equally messy when they covered the position. And I calculated the total returns, and it was like 7% or something. I was like, why would you do this for 7% return? You know, a billion dollars of capital in this messy way in a highly illiquid market that's very risky. He said, Raoul, you've no idea what you're talking about. We made 57%. I'm like, what? How? He said, oh, this was not equity trade. This was a currency trade. We couldn't borrow the short the currency because the market rates were too high. South Africa had two currencies, a commercial rand and a financial rand. One was for, uh, for foreigners and one was for domestics. Basically, to short the currency, the, the ones where all the foreigners were speculating, the rates were like 25%. So it's impossible to, to, to short the currency. But by shorting stocks, they were basically borrowing rand for a half a percent or whatever it costs for stock borrow. So they basically arbitraged the entire global borrowing markets, managed to get a huge position shorting the rand against the US dollar, and absolutely cleaned up. I love that. I think most of the podcast listeners are going to hit pause here and hit the rewind button, listen to that two or three times, because um, that's, a, that's a great one. Did I interrupt you? Were you going to say one more? I think you were going to mention a, a loser as well. Well, there's been plenty of those, right? <laughs> There's been plenty of those. I found the biggest losers have been when you overcomplicate something. And often you got yourself involved in the trade and then you figured out the smartest way in the world to do something. And I remember again, it was actually at fixed income futures in Eurodollar futures back in, again, 2003 or two, I think it was, where we had amassed an enormous um, option, call option position because the calls were super cheap and basically there were some funky ways that we could that we could do things and this was a great opportunity if the Fed didn't raise rates for 2003. So what we were right was dead right on our outcome what the Fed didn't do which was raise rates. We should have had a home run. What we didn't understand is that volatility could get absolutely crushed so the Volatility is the largest part of a pricing of an option. It got so crushed and people knew that the position that we had on 
and we're trading against us that basically we lost money in a trade that should have made a fortune. If we'd have just bought futures, we'd have done extremely well indeed, but we overcomplicated the trade and actually end up losing money in a, in a winning idea. I think that's great. Raul, well, not great that you lost money, but great <laughs> from an instructional standpoint. We we have a lot of common examples we talk about here, and that's one of my favorite parts of, of y'all's news podcast is you talk uh, a lot about uh, of losing trades and, and, and humble pie, where, it, by the way, listeners, if um, almost every trader, if you listen to them talk about their history, the best ones certainly will talk about their losers, whether it's Paul Tudor Jones or et cetera. Um, and that, in many cases, is the foundations for uh, w- what created their career. In my case, it's what caused me to be a quant um, and et cetera, et cetera. Raul, look, this has been a blast. Um, people want to follow you. Where, where can they find more information? Uh, what's the best place? The easiest, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter, at Raul, R-A-O-U-L, GMI. So at Raul GMI. And we also mentioned, but we'll give it a link in the podcast for realvision.com is a great hub for everything. And if you go to forward slash business, you'll get the, the longer video of Raul talking about the uh, business cycle as well. Yeah, it's, sorry, it's realvision.com forward slash business cycle. There's a whole free video there to show exactly how I use all of my financial framework, how I use the business cycle and real world examples. So people find it really useful if they're looking for a way to understand some of the concepts that I've introduced today. Awesome. Well, we'll have you back on when the ISM um, crosses below 50 again at some point in the future. Um, and Jeff wanted me to mention, go go heels, everyone. Uh, everyone, look, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions through the mailbag at feedback at com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or use Castro or Stitcher. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.